0: and we're roaming the world exploring food and the stories behind it enjoy
1: Welcome back guys, welcome back to Fork Pod. This is our first podcast back in the UK. Um last time we were recording on the Pacific coast of Panama for you, which is a bit different to today. Yeah. Uh, we're actually in um Spaulding in Lincolnshire, aren't we, Nina? We are.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's not quite as tropical, although the temperature isn't actually that different to Panama. It's absolutely boiling yeah, today. It's pretty bloody nice. Yeah. Um, so yeah, on our first episode, we've got a very special treat for you all. Uh, we talked to Olivier de Schutter who is the former UN special rapporteur for the right to food and um, he gave us a really unique global perspective on the food system he's one of the few people who would have such a broad view of, of what where we currently stand on on food and food supply and he told us what he thinks needs to change
1: yeah which turned out to be a complete restructure of the way that we produce food um, if we're all gonna continue to live on this planet yeah so
0: we didn't. Want want to start with anything too big no, so yeah. uh, we'll, you know we'll just go major restructure yeah see see how we go yep. enjoy here's olivier <laughs>
2: so i am olivier De shooter and i was between 2008 and 2014 the united nations special Rapporteur on the right to food and i now co-chair an initiative which is called the international panel of experts on sustainable food systems
1: so in a, in a nutshell, can you please explain to people what the right to food actually means in practical terms?
2: The right to food is a human right that, uh, if adequately complied with, should allow people to hold governments accountable. When governments are passive in the face of the problems emerging in food systems, and these problems may be of various sorts, Uh, the right to food should provide access to independent monitoring mechanisms in some cases courts, in order to ensure that the government um, delivers on its promises. And we have in some uh, states a very remarkable role that was played by the right to food. For example, before the Indian Supreme Court since 2001, there is a right to food case that has uh, led the Indian Supreme Court to deliver um, a large number of ordinances forcing the Indian State governments um, to deliver social aid, to deliver subsidised foodstuffs, in order to protect um, the families below the poverty line, and and there are other such examples across the world.
1: So I think, especially at the moment, it can feel like the world is uh, in quite a tumultuous time. It's there's a lot of upheaval that's been going on. What? Um, When you look at the history of the world, modern modern history, where do we stand at the moment in terms of um, access to food, right to food and food security?
2: I think we're at the end of a cycle. Until um, a few years ago, the major concern was uh, that we might not be able to produce enough food for a growing population uh, and a population that was switching to diets that were more diverse and more based on animal proteins because of urbanization and the concern was uh, to increase the volumes of production, the calories available if you wish, in order to satisfy that growing demand and demand for food increased even faster than population itself. However, we now realize um, that this insistence, this almost exclusive concern with increasing the volumes um, has led us to neglect the questions of nutrition, the environmental impacts of industrial food production, the disappearance of small farms linked to the desire to achieve economies of scale in how we produce food. And so we now realize that actually food systems, as they have developed, as they have been shaped by this productivist approach, are leading to a number of crises that have to be addressed. And they can only be addressed, these crises by reshaping the food systems in a way that is much more democratic and informed by the need not just to increase production, but also to ensure that food contributes to the well-being of populations.
0: Um, So while you were um, at the UN, your role obviously was a really big role, and it sort of covered a period of um, massive upheaval. You've got things like the global financial crisis and the start of the conflicts that we're seeing now in the Middle East. Um, We were wondering, did you ever feel sort of a sense of frustration about the scale of the problems that you were sort of um, overseeing and the access to food um, during your time in the UN? Did you have any frustration around how you could tackle that? And, well, yeah, let's start with that one.
2: So the the global food price crisis uh, that really developed uh, between December 2007 and and June 2008 was a major moment because we realized at the time, governments all over the world realized that the food systems were not quite as resilient um, as we had thought and, and that the recipes that had been developed, including the promotion of international trade in food products, um, had to be uh, fundamentally uh, questioned. And so a number of international summits took place, leading a new international consensus to emerge, for example, for the investment in small-scale family farming, for the investment in environmentally sustainable farming, for the investment in women farmers because of the feminization of agriculture. Um, And there were many commitments made at the time, in the years 2009, uh, 2012 in particular. However, the frustration is that very little could actually be achieved because really the drivers of the changes today are not governments anymore. They are primarily the private investors, the agribusiness firms who decide to invest in particular commodities, to um, ask farmers to supply them with particular crops, and and provide uh, the uh, inputs that that shall allow this. And. It is very difficult to ensure that the private sector contributes to the kind of reforms that we need. So governments could make all the pledges they wanted. Those pledges remained unfulfilled um, until the private sector understands it uh, has an interest in that change. Uh, Very little, in in fact, shall be be transformed as it must.
0: Mm, That's really tough. um, just on a personal level, what do you feel is your was your sort of greatest achievement? What are you most proud of as your um, during your time um, at the UN?
2: Uh, I think one small victory we did achieve was to convince uh, governments and international agencies indeed that financial speculation on agricultural commodities was one major source of price volatility Uh, when the question first emerged in 2008 2009 this was denied and it was said that um, the um, practices of the um, the the, the investment funds and the banks that were trading on agricultural commodities were simply reflecting the underlying fundamentals right shifts in supply and demand and weather related events and so on Um, when in fact The speculation the financial speculation by these financial actors uh, actually triggers uh, movements in the prices of commodities that cannot be explained by anything else than by the the speculative motives behind these financial investments and so we managed to convince um, the OECD um, and then others that this was a problem that needed to be addressed and and now a new system called the agricultural markets information system has been set up to improve the transparency in um, financial um, uh, investments and in in the in the in the food markets to 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 avoid um, the 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 speculation from having similar impacts as they had in 2008
0: that's really interesting
1: And I guess behind all those um, big investments and those decisions that happen at a, a global scale, or international scale, we have to remember that there are always individual people um, at the end of all that in terms of right to food and the impact on those people. I'm, I'm kind of guessing in your role, you must have met quite a lot of people and been in lots of different situations in terms of trying to research this issue. Were there any particular moments or people that you met that kind of stayed with you and made you kind of feel like you had to drive forwards with your with your role.
2: There is a huge mismatch between what people um, uh, and on the front line of hunger experience and um, sort of reformatting uh, that is uh, made at international level by governments by by international agencies. Um, so, for example, the small farmers whom I spent time with, particularly in Africa, to a lesser extent in, in Latin America and South Asia, they are already facing climate change. Uh, they do not know when to sow. They do not know when to harvest. They have no idea whether or not they should um, irrigate. Um, they um, um, are not well equipped to deal with um increasingly unpredictable uh, weather-related events such as floods and droughts, and um, for them, climate change is not a fiction. And um, it is very striking to me that we, the discussions about you know, having to avoid uh, an increase of temperature beyond 2 degrees centigrade in comparison to pre-industrial levels, for example, is very... Um, uh, remote in its abstraction from the very concrete uh, difficulties that difficulties that they face. So what they need is. Uh, to be able to irrigate, they need to be able to plant trees, they need to be, um, uh, s- to have access to insurance uh, if they lose their crops, they need to be trained to practice low-input farming um, and, and to um, build resilient farming systems for which they are not well-equipped. And none of this is really done for them.
0: If you, it's sort of a hypothetical question really, if you had um, unlimited power and you could change one thing about the food system today, what would that be? Is there something that you would, you would pick on to that would be your thing to, to change?
2: I think many of the problems that we witness um, in Europe and elsewhere have, have to do with the globalization of food supply chains, um, facilitated of course by uh, the yield liberalization of trade and investment and the result has been not only that our diets increasingly are composed of processed uh, heavily processed foods uh, but also that consumers and producers um, uh, live at a distance from one another and our food is basically shaped in order to survive um, a long shelf life uh, to have a long shelf life and to um, and to survive, uh, traveling over long distances, um, and. Much, um, many of the problems we witness, the need to achieve economies of scale, um, the, the, the the global competition between farmers, has to do with this globalization. So, I believe the priority should be to relocalize food systems, to re reterritorialize food systems, to develop um, uh, shorter food chains, uh, linking more directly producers to consumers, um, as an alternative program to the. Um, pressure towards globalization and large scale, we've seen develop over the past 30 years.
1: Do you see that as, in, as impacting um, our ability to adapt to climate change as well? That localization, like that?
2: Absolutely. Uh, the development of global supply chains means that in the way we farm, we prioritize uh, the production of large volumes of uniform things because that is what the big players. Uh, in the global food system demand from farmers and the uh, the result is uh, that farming has been sacrificing biodiversity that farm systems are much more uniform and much much less diverse which means not only that the soil is much less rich in its biological life so that it cannot function as as carbon, as a carbon sink as it should, but also that the farming systems are much less resilient to climate shocks because of their uniformity. So we need to move from uniformity to diversity. We need to move from the cultivation of large monocultures over large surfaces of land to into cropping schemes and to rotating uh, uh, crops uh, in order to preserve the health of the soil. That is a major asset in the fight against climate change and it's been completely neglected until now.
1: How do you take that back though, because it's almost like, I think for a lot of farmers, it, that feels like going back in time, doesn't it? How do you convince them that actually it's, a, it's actually moving forward?
2: It can be perceived as um, a reverse, um, um, as a return to the to, to past practices, but I think it's really what we need in the 21st century, in which resource efficiency is, I think, what we uh, want to prioritize. Um, and um, in which the major challenge that um, farming faces is that of environmental sustainability. So the real problem in shifting to more diverse farming systems is that it can be more labor intensive, therefore more expensive. The cost of production may be higher, although this is partly compensated by Uh, the the diminished uh, use of external inputs that are very um, expensive for the farmers. Um, But it does mean that we have to question um, which farmers are supported for which kind of farming practice. And until the economic incentives uh, shall be aligned on the need for more sustainable farm farm systems, it is true that the margin for uh, progress shall be limited.
0: Um, yeah, just yeah, just one more question to follow up on that. In practical terms, um, I guess kind of what Jess said, you've got these big farms all over the world, and they've invested a lot of money and time into building these large-scale systems. Um, do you see a sort of practical solution? In is that is that possible to sort of you know change their way of farming at this point? That you know a lot of it is geared towards global food systems now. How do you tell a big large-scale farmer that's got all these efficiencies through economies of scale that actually to survive environmentally and, and you know to protect their business long long term, they've got to become more diversified. I mean, that like practically speaking, do you see that as possible, or is that kind of something that we are aiming towards, but maybe won't ever be able to to achieve?
2: It is certainly going to be very difficult in the most industrialized um, farming landscapes to make that shift. Uh, I do believe, however, that if subsidies and taxes are well tailored. To reward the good practices and to force the internalization of negative externalities, um, that can succeed. But we need to give these farmers the time to adapt and Mm -hmm. for the three, four years during which they shall make this transition, during which they shall make losses, because they may have to uh, redevelop a totally new farming system on the land that they that they own or manage. Um, we need to support them financially. It is not costless um, to make that change. Although the rewards in the long run are tremendous, both for the individual farmer and for the society, um, in the short term, it can be expensive. And so we need to, we need to help them um, in this uh, transition, provide them with the advice, provide them with the marketing opportunities, and provide them with the financial support they need during the time of that transition.
0: Well, it's true farmers have always been very good at adapting, so uh, yeah, maybe it is possible. Yes, I hope so. <laughs> Thank you, Olivier.
2: Okay, very Thank welcome.
0: You. Thanks. Nina, thoughts on Olivier and what he was saying, come on. So, yeah, we've just had a very brief chat after speaking to Olivier. It's very interesting stuff. We mainly wonder whether this Vision of a new, completely restructured global food system is possible. Um, bearing in mind how competitive different countries are, how farming is currently structured, and um, you know, just generally, how do you how do you um, persuade farmers to? Um, you know, change the way they farm um, and, as Olivier put it, take a few years of loss on the head.
1: <laughs> what do you yeah. think? <laughs> well, we were just saying, weren't we? It's kind of, it's almost like a bit of an extension of the, the cap, something like that. Yeah. Like if a country was to sort of say, right, okay, if we're going to be like, if our food system is truly going to be sustainable long term and mm-hmm. we're still going to be here in like hundreds of years and whatever and our resources are going to be there, yeah. then we have to have more of an integrated approach and we have to recognise that our farmers need to compete with um, others around the world who are perhaps not in a system like that and not in a sustainable system and therefore we have to support them which is kind of what which is what the CAP does already to an extent mm-hmm. but obviously there are a lot of problems
0: with it. The CAP obviously being the European system of subsidies for yeah. farmers, obviously well Assuming all our yeah. lovely listeners will know that, but just in case they don't, Which you were just you were just saying to you me, know, like, oh, what country? Like, how's the opportunity right now to
1: yeah. actually reshape that, that, be? that?
0: Who has just cut themselves loose from a previously restraining model of agriculture and who could make some real, genuine, sustainable changes to their food system? Yeah. We looked around and we thought, oh, well, wait, that's us. <laughs> oh, oh <God. laughs> so yes. yeah we assume that people are working on that mm. so they say
1: yeah i mean it is sort of it, i mean it sort of sounds like yeah. it might make some noises hasn't he about green yeah.
0: incentives yeah but payments
1: for yeah. public goods basically mm-hmm. but then it's it's like how integrated is that like really yeah. like long term yeah with all of our natural resources and yeah. our, and i just think like what you know where does that even stand if we end up then having like all these massive trade deals Mm -hmm. with countries that like the US or something that has completely different model to us
0: can you can you even do that on your own without a global um, you know a global approach to it because we're so tied yeah. into a, a mm. global trade, mm. can you can you restructure your own country's farming system without everybody else on board? I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, Olivier's obviously that. done a, a global mm-hmm. role, U- UN, and he knows a lot about it. And he believes that, well, he said, didn't he, that he, we've come to an end of one cycle. So maybe we are in at the beginning of a new cycle and gradually those kind of changes will come in. Mm,
1: let's hope so. I mean, I suppose if you, like, I don't know, maybe a parallel kind of industry, as an example, might be something like energy, like renewable energy. Yeah. Countries, I mean, used to be yeah. much more reliant on a, a kind of global mm-hmm. market of energy. But now, you know, I mean, I mean, the UK itself is actually doing a lot of you know offshore offshore wind um Germany's got a lot of wind as well so countries are like have been able to do things individually yeah and that has a knock-on effect
0: I think probably the truth is that everybody will end up doing it because you know it's not it's not up for it's not in question whether um you know the food the way we produce food is going to have to change it already is like you know, climate change is happening now, so it's only you know it's only it makes economic sense as well as um, as well as everything else because you, you're going to have to change mm. if you're going to adapt yeah. more quickly and become resilient in the face of unpredictable climate change. Do you think the big thing there will be whether taxpayers essentially
1: and consumers will swallow yeah. a large um, support system
0: well, for If farming? you don't want to support your food system, what do you want to support? Well, I know,
1: quite, <laughs> quite. Well, I know, obviously yeah, we'll, put the healthcare,
0: we'll put the healthcare system in there as well, obviously. Oh, God, big big yeah. shout out for the NHS. Hey, NHS. <laughs> but, you know, very close second, if not mm. equal top, mm. would be a very sustainable food system because everybody eats, don't they? I know, but what? it's just whether we're at that point mm. in society where we've actually
1: realised mm-hmm. that it's not a kind of bottomless pit yeah it's it's kind of you know (laughs) resources are not renewable I I mean I kind of think like we're so complacent in this country and a lot of the west really because we've never really had to face Mm. like empty shelves on the shop like a sustained amount of time till the
0: courgette crisis came along all the lettuce the tesco well exactly yeah
1: um but yeah I'm I'm just not convinced that a lot of politicians or just ordinary people, th- like kind of really believe mm. that our food system is under stress. Yeah, they think and we're
0: protected from it.
1: Yeah, and there are some people then, like good old, uh, not good old at all. Um, what's his face? Uh, oh, Got his name now. Who are we talking about here? A politician, kind of. Feels like you have dug him up from Victorian era. Owen Patterson? No. Well, yes, yeah, that <laughs> him as well. Oh, um, Rhys Mugg. Rhys Mugg. Oh, yeah. Jacob. Oh,
0: Jacob. Yeah. Jacob. Anyway, um, <laughs> I, I yeah, kind of like, he, dragging you know, us all backwards into. Yeah.
1: Well, this idea yeah. that you know, like, oh well, you know, if we don't grow anything ourselves, it's fine. We'll just import it. Yeah. All. Yeah. Good I mean, one, Jacob.
0: You what tell that the to the farmers dealing with drought in Kenya or <laughs> wherever else.
1: I know, right?
0: Um, so I think God. yeah best way is to keep people really engaged with, you know, food and and promote this interest in provenance and, you know, really try and drive it home that it's not something that's affecting the rest of the world and little old Britain's going to be fine because that's not true. Um, And yeah, hopefully, hopefully we are in a new cycle and it is something that's achievable. Mm, I really hope so. The
1: whole planning kind of depends on it really.
0: Yeah. So we'll go and find out more because we're going into the conference, which I think has actually started. Oh, food Ethics Council 20th birthday party. Happy birthday. Yay.
1: <laughs> You've been listening to Who Gives a Fork? Brought to you by me, Nina. And me, Jez. Keep listening as we travel the world and visit farms, plantations and food producers. See you next time. <laughs>